This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. So today we have another special episode and a treat, quite simply, just for you. Recently, Felicity and I sat down with Kerry Craig, who is a global market strategist at JP Morgan, to discuss the latest economic data and the markets as he's seeing them. With more than 10 years' experience, Kerry offers up really valuable insights and perspectives on the global economy and markets to help investors and you, our listeners, make sense on what's going on right now. Now, you might be familiar with his voice as Kerry is a frequent commentator on Bloomberg, CNBC, the AFR and other wider financial press. As you'll hear in this conversation with Kerry, he's able to explain complex economic and market issues in a language that investors understand. Now, prior to joining JP Morgan, Kerry worked in the UK pensions industry and also held several economic research positions in the New Zealand government. So he's clearly the guy to know when it comes to the macro data. Now, before we jump into the question of the day, what's going on with this state of economies, please remember, although Felicity and I are registered financial advisors at Shoring Partners, as always, the podcast and the content that we will discuss in this episode does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything we'll be chatting about is based on the facts known at the time of recording being the 13th of June, 2023. So with that, with a disclaimer out of the way, let's kick off our conversation with Kerry. So welcome, Kerry, to Talk Money to Me. We're very excited to be speaking with you today. Oh, thanks. It's great to be on the show. Now, I guess to set the scene, why don't we kick off the conversation by you giving us your take on the current market conditions and the macro data as you're seeing it. You know, I guess from our perspective, there's a lot of news in the markets at the moment, but what's important to you and what are you closely watching at the moment? You know, are you feeling positive, negative, or kind of in the middle? It does feel a little bit like in the middle at the moment. I mean, the way that I characterize markets right now, it's a, it's a case of waiting and watching. Um, that's waiting for clarity around the inflation outlook, around where interest rates are going, around what that means for a recession or just a very weak period of economic growth, and then watching to see how central banks are going to respond to all that because they're increasingly treading this very narrow path as they think about how they balance out that target of inflation they have and also the fact that they they generally do want to keep unemployment rates low and they want to see the economy expand. So it's this sort of middling ground between what's been expected for the course of this year, which was one that was going to be an outlook for the market, which was going to be better, uh, and one that was going to be not so good for the economy. And what we've actually had is a markets that have done quite well uh, and an economy that's done actually much better than expected with all this resilience that's been in the growth story. So it does seem a, a bit like an odd statement that it's about watching and waiting when you've got the US equity market just moved back into bull market territory, but it's been relatively narrow 
and you compare this to where bond yields are, they're basically where they were at the start of the year. So typically that suggests that there's been a round tripping on how people have viewed the equity market. So it is a bit of a middling ground. It's very hard to be extremely bearish given what we are seeing around earnings and growth. Uh, and at the same time, it's hard to be very bullish considering some of those those risks that are still out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So just to clarify from what you're saying, you know, being middle of the market at the moment or middle perspective, not too bull, not too bear. Does that mean JP Morgan's view is just hold more cash at the moment while things start to settle? I mean, there's an element of of how we think about being nimble across the markets and how we recognise that you know, there doesn't need to be too much to sway the outlook to say, yeah, we're heading for a recession. And that has a very different allocation for thinking about underweight equities and overweight fixed income. Or, you know, maybe we do get a better growth outcome. And actually, we see equities continue to perform and the fixed income market looks a bit bit more challenged in that environment. So having cash is a case of being nimble. I mean, I would say there's an opportunity cost that comes with holding cash at the moment. And I think that a lot of clients we speak to have moved into cash because they don't want to hold fixed income from their experiences of the last year. Um, and that's probably not the right thing to do. If you're locking up your cash for that one or two years in a term deposit, you're really giving up the allocation that you could have when opportunities do present themselves. So I think having more cash is right because you're ready to allocate. Having more cash because you're holding it to be defensive and not wanting to hold fixed income uh, is not the right outcome because we know that you know when cash rates do peak, when we see interest rates peak from central banks, the 12-month returns after that you get from assets are much better than what you get from holding cash over that period. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the Australian market was actually quite resilient compared to overseas markets last year as well. Now, speaking of cash, so the RBA recently in June raised rates by 0.25 basis points, so actually taking our cash rate to 4.10%. Do you think this was the right decision? And do you think the RBA is kind of looking for an unrealistic inflation target, given it's looking very entrenched and sticky in some parts of the economy? I mean, we didn't expect them to hike interest rates. It wasn't our view in JP Morgan. So, you know, like many others, we thought they would wait and and look for the data. Um, But in the sort of preference of hindsight being perfect, you can obviously look back and say, you know, Governor Lowe came out and said, you know, if you put up wages and you put up the awards and minimum wages, that's going to create inflation pressures. And therefore, we'll respond by hiking rates because we need to control that inflation. And they did exactly that. So to a degree, uh, it shouldn't have been as much a surprise as it was. But we're in this period where we were looking at central banks around the world and you saw the Bank of Canada go into pause and we were thinking about the Fed going into pause. And so we were just extrapolating and saying, well, central banks are now going into this area of pausing, waiting to uh, see how their economic data goes, and they may hike rates after that. That's very much changed now where it's all a case of Bank of Canada increased rates, the RBA increased rates. So this idea of a pause is very much being challenged. So it, it is a it was a surprise they hiked rates, but it shouldn't have been if we look back at the data. Um, do they have an unrealistic expectation around where inflation should be? I mean, the reason they have these targets of 2 to 3% is because that's the, the right level of inflation that keeps the economy humming along. It's like the engine in your car. You don't want it to be cold. You don't want it to be hot. You want it to be warm to get the, the most out of it. So they want the economy to be warm. Uh, and that means that they have to think about that inflation level of 2 to 3%. The RBA has some flexibility because they don't have a set specific number of 2%. They're thinking about that target band, so that means they can be at the top end of that. And I think after having inflation that has been for such an extended period of time below their target band, like being not enough, 
they'll be willing to accept a bit of inflation that's above it if it means they don't have to go back down the path of thinking about zero interest rates or rates that are very close to zero because it didn't inflate the economy. All it did was create higher prices in the housing market. All it did was inflate asset prices. It didn't create a lot of growth. And it's the same with quantitative easing. I mean, the balance sheet uh, and its use by central banks is going to become more prevalent. But again, the experiment of, of using the balance sheet to drive growth is not something that really worked out. So more inflation means they don't have to go down and use those extraordinary policy tools. And I think there'll be some level of comfort in that. So I think there's, there's probably not necessarily an unrealistic target around inflation. I just think it's going to take a lot longer to get back down to that target. Uh, and that means we should think about rates being higher for longer. Okay. So you have the view that rates will be higher for longer. I mean, when is JP Morgan predicting, you know, a potentially a pause or even a rate cut? What are your thoughts on that? Again, uh, you know, our house economist view is that that rates probably aren't going to go up from here. I, I think there's been a really quick reaction by many market commentators and banks out there to quickly add another couple of rate hikes into their outlook for the RBA. And I think we're just going to wait and look at the data and how it evolves because we have now downgraded our growth outlook based on the more hawkish tilt we're hearing. Uh, we don't think the RBA wants to drive the economy into recession. Uh, that tighter uh, policy rates around the world. Let's hope not. Yeah, yeah. I hope not as well. <laughs> well, consecutive hikes, ouch, it's, it's hurting. <laughs> it's not their goal, right? It's not their goal to create a recession. Their goal is to, to bring down inflation. And it, the, the way they might do that is through recession, but it's not ultimately what they're trying to do. So, you know, we think that it, it will be the case that they're more biased to hike rates. Uh, if they do so, the chance of recession just goes up as they do it. Um, but we think that, you know, that they should be in a period of, of waiting to watch that data, uh, waiting to see how the impact of those higher interest rates does affect the economy. Uh, and also thinking about the fact that they've been pretty gradual. They hike interest rates on the way up. Um, much slower than many other central banks around the world. And we still think they'll have that pretty gradual approach when it comes to movements from here. So by no means are we banking on them doing another two rate hikes, but the bias is definitely for another one. Not out of the woods yet. <laughs> so that's the Australian take. Kerry, can we now just look at other parts of the global market? Because very soon we'll be hearing from the Fed, which you've touched on. So what's your take on how they're fighting the inflation battle? You know, it seems... It, you know, very different opinions. They're going to pause. They're going to keep going. We'll be shocked. But it seems like it's the most anticipated recession that's not really happening. As you're saying, the economy's actually in pretty good shape. So what are you making of it? Yeah, it would be uh, be amazing, wouldn't it, if that was the, the most anticipated recession that didn't happen. Uh, and, you know, you can look at surveys, like there's a uh, economist survey that, you know, like had 90% chance of recession happening. Pretty much everyone was saying a recession. That started to come off uh, many market-based indicators that you look at around yield curves or, or anything else still say recession is coming. Um, so it would be would be amazing if they avoided recession at this point. I think for the inflation numbers in the US, I mean, they are much further along their disinflationary journey, and it is disinflationary, than other central banks. They were earlier to come out of the, the pandemic to some regards. They were earlier to, to drive the economy forward, and now they're earlier to, to see the implications of not having that fiscal stimulus come through to think about consumers really running out of money to spend as that consumption comes down, um, to think about the impact of that roll off in energy prices and food prices and some of the distortion effects around uh, cars that hit the inflation outlook. I mean, you're going to get inflation numbers for the US this week. Uh, that was close to 5% last month. 
it's probably going to be in the low fours when it comes out this month. Uh, and it's going to be well off that peak of close to 9% they had. So it's almost you know going to be half of what it was. So that's definitely a genuine disinflationary force. And again, if it gets back down to 3% by the end of the year, I think the Federal Reserve will be pretty happy that that inflationary pressure is coming out of the economy. Um, the things that we do watch that are being very sticky when it comes to inflation, such as the shelter component and, and housing costs of the US uh, inflationary basket, which are about a third, so very meaningful. Um, if you look at rent prices that are being advertised now, such as the Zillow index, they are coming down. So it takes time for these things around uh, housing pressures to come out, but those early indicators that we look at for inflation are starting to show that softness come through. So, you know, again, we think the Federal Reserve is probably not going to hike rates this week, that they're probably going to be uh, not certain on signaling a rate hike in the next meeting in July, but, you know, they're going to leave that door open should they want to, but they're going to be waiting to see that disinflationary pressure start to, to, to keep going. They're going to look at that labour market and the unemployment rate. Uh, if that starts moving up, which it has, uh, that's going to be enough for them to say, we don't need to do any more because, again, they're trying to balance out that inflation and growth outlook. And they're very aware that further tightening in policy rates could actually make that recession or bring about that recession much more quickly than they perhaps had thought. Yeah, so they're really kind of waiting now and just actually looking at the data. Um, so, so far in 2023, the US with the US markets, we've seen a huge divide between sectors of the economy. Once you kind of look outside the top mega cap tech names, it's really a narrow rally in US equities. So, thank you to all of the AI tailwinds. Some tech names are actually up over 100% from the start of the year. Now, you've obviously got the JP Morgan NASDAQ equity premium income ETF, JPEG, which aims to deliver a monthly income stream from option premiums and stock dividends from the top US growth names like NVIDIA, Facebook to name a few. Now this ETF share price is actually over 16% year to date so far. So on this, do you anticipate this tech rally will continue? These are great questions because I get this a lot around, you know, why has the market done so strongly and, you know, is it going to keep going? And generally when there's momentum in something, people want it to keep Absolutely. going because uh, they've either invested in it or they've not invested it and they're like, is this going to crash and I can invest back in? FOMO. FOMO. <laughs> For us, there's yeah, two ways I'd look at this. First is, is the short term. So we can say there's been a huge amount of enthusiasm uh, that's sort of driven this market higher. Yes, absolutely. Uh, generative AI, chat GPT that's come out and you've seen this big jump in a lot of the names related to that, a lot of the sort of uh, ecosystem around the things that will benefit from that. Uh, and that has driven up valuations really sharply in a lot of these names. So that would be the first thing. Are you seeing the earnings outlook match what you're seeing the, the uh, movement up in valuations or are you just simply paying too much? And I think in a couple of places, you may be looking at these and saying these things have got very expensive for the earnings, which are not yet proven because while everyone loves uh, AI, it's pretty sort of tangential about exactly how this may be applied to uh, the way companies work, the productivity benefits we see around the economy. Um, and so there's always that, that challenge that comes through on that, that basis. So a short-term pullback as we see um, higher bond yields come through, if we do see the Federal Reserve hike rates, there's that negative relationship between uh, bond yields as they move up and the valuations on stocks because that discount rate they apply moves higher. So that could be a challenge in the short term. You've also seen some broadening out in terms of the US market more lately, more recently. So some of the cyclical names are starting to do that because of that divergence in valuation between those big mega cap names and a lot of the smaller cap names and that resilience in the economy, people are looking at for value elsewhere. In the longer term, on the medium term, 
absolutely the steam is here to stay. I mean, we can talk about cloud cloud computing, AI, all these kind of features of technology which are going to lead to enhanced productivity, which are going to shift the way that that companies behave and consumers behave. Uh, They are definitely going to be something that's a secular theme that's worth focusing on. Um, But again, I think some of it has uh, yet to be proven. And there's a very famous quote that really goes along the lines of, technology change is often uh, overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long run. Uh, and I think that's the case today when we've seen this big lift in such a narrow part of the market that there is a lot more uh, to go, but it's just a case of are you paying too much for it? And finally on this, I would say, I know this is a long answer, so I apologize, <laughs> that this is creates a massive opportunity for a lot of active stock pickers. When you have such a huge dispersion in valuations across a market and a huge dispersion in valuation or expected returns across a market, then there's going to be mispricing. And, and that's an opportunity for an active manager to, to really look for where that value is uh, and potentially pick up a lot of good quality companies that just are being misrepresented by a focus on a very narrow set of, of companies within the index. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that and saying that to our clients at the moment as well, um, looking for active managers because they can really add a lot of value now. So one thing I want to just pick up here as well is effectively in the short term, we might see some volatility in those big names like NVIDIA and Facebook. They might come back. Microsoft, you know, the Magnificent Seven, as we were just chatting about with you. But in the long term, it's not a bubble. That's the key message there. There will be strong growth and magnificent earning numbers to come out of this sector is what you're saying, Kerry, right? Well, I think that the the, the color that everyone makes or the comparison is obviously the, the tech bubble back in the early 2000s and saying is this a repeat of that. Yeah, the and, dot com. And chuck on a dot com at the end. Chuck on a dot com at the end, yeah. I mean, back then it was all about the um, uh, the rise of the unprofitable companies, the fact that you had uh, no really way to, to measure the earnings on what these companies were doing. And there are still some of those companies in the market today, if we look at the tech sectors that have been pushed up and there's probably not profitability there. But I think for a lot of investors, if you can focus on that quality company where that shift will be uh, and the prevalence of how this technology could be applied to many um, corporate structures or the economy, there's definitely a a win there. Um, It doesn't mean that's all going to happen within the next six months or the next 12 months. Um, So it is that secular theme that we focus on in terms of how you focus on that in a portfolio or something that's going to be quite persistent. Um, And even when you think about it being relatively uh, defensive, if these are high cash flow companies coming through, it's also a reason to say that you might be a little bit of a defensive bias in these companies should the economy start to to sour a little bit. 100% because some of the tech names are even more capitalised than banks are these days. Um, And, you know, one interesting point is we're focused on the names that we know now, but what about the unknown names, the private companies that will come out in the next five to 10 years? So definitely a really interesting theme there. And we agree with you, not a bubble. I want to now pivot to another part of the market, which is catching a lot of eyeballs at the moment, is China. A surprise there would be the weaker than expected China reopening trade and GDP numbers. So I guess from your perspective, why is it such a disappointment and how much more does it need in terms of um, stimulus and timing for their economy to get back on track? I mean, it has been disappointing. I mean, we had we had very high hopes, and the first quarter growth numbers were <laughs> astounding, right? You know, this massive boost in growth. Uh, the removal of the COVID restrictions happened much more quickly and quite abruptly compared to what many people expected at the end of last year. We thought it would be quite gradual. 
and they just removed them like a ripping off a Band-Aid. Uh, and so you had that initial surge in consumption like you saw in any other developed market or any other economy when they removed the COVID restrictions. People went to the movies, they went to restaurants, they bought things they couldn't buy. I mean, and then the expectation was like, well, what happened here in Australia or what happened in the US or what happened in Europe, you'll have that same pattern flow through. Um, but the difference was in China, you didn't have the same support from the government. I mean, you had people who were stuck at home. They weren't getting sent money in the post like they did in the US. They weren't getting furloughed from their jobs like they did in Australia or in, or in the UK. They didn't have that same support. So their incomes were being hampered. Um, the, the, the theory was the government didn't want to give them lots of money when they couldn't go and spend it because you just create inflation in pockets of the economy where you didn't want it. And so once they came out, there was still this consideration around, well, my actual outlook for earnings has not got any better. Youth unemployment is over 20% in China. Um, and the housing market has a question mark over it still because prices are rising, but they're nowhere near where they were. And they're actually still coming off in year-on-year -year terms a little bit. And so this doesn't have a huge uh, wealth effect for consumers in that environment who really want to go out and spend in a big way on those things that matter, like houses or those big ticket investment items. If you don't have that aggregate demand on the consumer side, companies are also thinking, well, why would I be investing in that environment when I'm not sure that there's that sustainable growth? And so you've had this sort of negative cycle start to kick in and everyone's waiting and watching to see the government respond with fiscal stimulus. And it hasn't happened. You've seen definitely talk of it uh, at different levels of government. They've talked about the things they can do. They've done smaller adjustments to their current policy settings to try and alleviate some of those things around the housing market and stepping back from some of these red lines. But it's not happening across all the different tiers of cities. Uh, and so we do think there needs to be further policy adjustments come through. It's not going to be big fiscal spend uh, like you've had in the past. It's going to be quite targeted. And it's very much going to be around how China wants its economy to evolve. You know, they think about how they can reach that sustainable growth outlook over the long run. They're thinking about how they can build a more modern industrial economy. So obviously that leads you to thinking about renewables, a greener economy, a tech-driven economy, one where productivity gets higher and one that's much more self-sustainable uh, in terms of that technology, given you know the geopolitical environment, and also one where they can make uh, consumers more wealthy by lifting that GDP per capita. All that stuff takes time. And I think the Chinese government have a very long view of their economy so if you get one quarter or two quarters of growth that's not great, they're probably not too worried. They're looking about what growth is going to do over the next five or 10 years. And that's very different to how we look at our economies in Australia or the US, where they think about what happened in this quarter, two quarters of negative growth, recession, what's going to happen, whereas China is a very different beast. And I think that's the same from a, a, an investment standpoint. Some solid themes there, but it's, it's a long run play in your portfolio. And just have patience is essentially what you're saying. We all need to just let them do what they need to do. So really we've spoken to date so far about the fight against inflation and how we've seen central banks globally you know, react really quickly. We've talked about the tech rally and the overall market conditions that Kerry's seeing right now and more broadly JP Morgan. But up next we'll be hearing his thoughts on emerging markets, maybe some new themes to come out of there, and the overall look for growth and defensive assets as we head into 2024. So don't go anywhere. We'll have all that and more coming up just after this short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. All right. So staying in the Asian markets, I mean, there's a lot of talk about India actually being a significant Asian power for Australia's economic future. Do you have any thoughts on that, that it potentially isn't going to be China moving forward? Yeah, I mean, this. This comes up a lot every time it's, uh, you know, India's got a bigger population now. They're thinking about, is it the, the China dragon or the Asian tiger from India? Uh, and it has been an economy that has uh, failed to fire in the past because you have this huge potential um, and you've had uh, sort of on the government side, a lot of the policies haven't lived up to, to release that potential. Uh, and in fact, when we look at our long-term view of the world through our long-term capital market assumptions, we do forecast for for growth and inflation rates for economies around the world, the Indy one actually gets a bit of a downgrade in most years coming if I go back over the last few years because of that that failure to lift the economy on sort of what should be a lot of promise. You know, this year you've seen the market do exceptionally well, uh, and that's because the growth has been doing better than expected. Uh, the inflation numbers are coming down, and so you've had this quite favourable outlook for for the market. And also, as people have been or investors have been a little bit challenged by China, they're looking for other opportunities to to play through that, whether it's Japan or India. Um, at, or Europe to a certain degree. And so I think that's helping lift as well. So I think India has been a, a one that's become much more into focus. The performance of the market this year means the valuations have gone up uh, a little bit and are looking quite elevated. Um, however, the quality of the companies underlying has also improved. So you can make the argument that those valuations should be higher because you're buying a better company on the basis of it. But for us, I think there's always that scope for the valuations to be a little bit high given the earnings outlook. Um, and also thinking about the fact that, you know, should things start to improve in China, are you going to see that rotation away uh, back towards China? Because I think for for many investors, when they think about emerging markets, they just they just think China, basically, it's 30% of the EM index, uh, and it's going to dominate. And then the other big chunks of that are Taiwan and Korea. So India is up there, but it's not the only thing that sort of drives drives the index when I think investors in Australia think about their emerging market exposure. Absolutely. So you're not full steam ahead yet on India. Uh, what about Japanese equities? So they're at a 30-year high. Is this going to continue? And if so, what are you looking for for the rally to continue? I mean, yeah, I mean, over the, the last decade, uh, I think I think Japan's a bit like Vegemite, right? People either love it or hate it, and it's been performed up and down over time. But you know, over the last decade, you've actually seen a, a bit of a, a sleeper story in terms of what's driving the performance of the market this year. It's yes about the economy, the fact that you are having growth, that you are having inflation for the first time in such a long time. That's actually seeing um, a potential move away from these very accommodative policies by the Bank of Japan, um, and you're going to hear more about that this week. In fact. 
And then you're also seeing more um, shifts in inflation in terms of actually uh, wages moving higher and maybe you break out of this this disinflationary spiral they've been in for such a long period of time. But you've also got to hark back to, you know, the early 2010s when you had Arbonomics, right? And under Arbonomics, one of the three arrows was all about improving corporate governance, improving shareholder relations and, and communication with shareholders. And that's actually steadily led to that improvement over time. And more recently, you've had the Tokyo Stock Exchange look at the companies and want to reorganize them in terms of how they classify them. You've had uh, more regulatory changes coming out and saying, basically, if we can uh, improve the, the valuations of these companies, we can improve the return outlook that'll lift the quality of these companies. And so, again, that bigger focus has come through in terms of uh, how you shift those attitudes towards uh, the the shareholders, um, how you think about that rise in valuations and how you think about that rise of returns. And one of the ways we're seeing it most evidently is the fact that you have Japanese companies who hold just a lot of cash, you know, buying back their stock because as they buy back their stock, that lifts the value of those companies. And the regulators are saying, well, we want to focus on those companies that have a price to book ratio of less than one which, by the way, is half of all companies listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Um, and so you do that by buying back stock. And you had the biggest stock buyback announcement last year for Japan. And, and that's, again, providing some of the return. The valuations are lifting. The outlook looks better for the economy. That can't sustain forever. You can't just keep buying back your stock. But it definitely shifts uh, the attitude of international investors towards Japan, which have been underweight, as I mentioned, that Marmite kind of experience, that Vegemite kind of experience, um, and that will actually improve the outlook. So I think Japan is actually a pretty good case at the moment. We see the recovery in the economy. We see tourism that's coming back and, and still hasn't fully opened up and has scope to go back. We see rising wages that support that domestic consumption. And, and we saw more um, interest from international investors, which will also support the market. So I think Japan is, is actually going through somewhat of a structural shift in terms of the attitude uh, of investors and the fact that it's been a big underweight for many people for a very long time. So there's a positive story. For like 30 years. So finally, woo. <laughs> finally. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing Japan in July. So it'll be interesting to actually go there. I'm going to Tokyo. So we'll see. Uh, one of my colleagues was there recently and he did his own survey of bartenders, which I think summarized his trip. <laughs> what did he find? Everyone was quite happy. Everyone was very optimistic about the outlook and things are changing. But again, I mean, this highlights my point. The number of people that I know have been to Japan this year, uh, you're going yourself, that tourism's going back, that reopening. Um, I'm hoping to go as well later in this year. It's a place that I've always wanted to go, but that feeds into this narrative. You're going to see this, this uh, growth continue to perform on the basis of that tourism has come back, but still has a long way to go. Um, and it really does support the outlook uh, for, for the economy and, and for the markets. And even though those valuations have gone up, they're still uh, you know, relatively cheap compared to their history. Um, this, it's still a good, mm. it's, it's a relatively attractive market on a valuation basis. So it's just speaking more broadly about themes, because we are talking about emerging markets, is that one kind of key theme you're seeing at JP Morgan rolling out? And will that flow on to maybe, you know, Australian tourism picking up more? Because we do get lumped into that APAC region. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, sometimes we act like an emerging market by proxy, given we have this overweight towards yeah. um, commodities and how our economy behaves. Uh, I mean, the broader emerging market index is up about 5% year to date. As I mentioned, 30% of the index is China, so that's weighing on it. There's been really strong performance in, in Taiwan and Korea this year. Uh, those valuations have risen. Again, that's somewhat of, of a, that play through AI and, and technology, which, and is semiconductors. Big, which is a big chunk mm. of those uh, markets, absolutely, semiconductors. Um, 
I think for us, the difference is that, yeah, you can see education start to come back and tourism start to come back. I mean, Chinese people are definitely traveling again, but it's mainly it's been to ASEAN uh, economies if you look at how uh, the flight schedule is changing. So I would expect that to be a, a boost. I think that somewhat of the difference is the fact that in the past, you could say China's been somewhat counter-cyclical, right? When the growth gets weak, lots of government spending, lots of infrastructure build, lots of demand for um, steel, so therefore iron ore helps support the case for, for miners in Australia. I, you're not seeing that fiscal response this time. You're not seeing that same shift. You might see it come through in terms of some of the renewables, demand for things like copper and stuff, but not for the for the big bulk commodities that that um, that the Australia exports. So the impact might not be as meaningful, and I think you're seeing that in terms of the manufacturing survey data out of the Chinese market, the PMIs for manufacturing still being quite weak. The services PMI is being very strong. So it's not always going to play out the same way. And I think that that would be a little bit of a headwind to the outlook for the Australian economy, uh, given we have those higher interest rates and we are actually seeing you know, somewhat of the impact of those still having to come through in terms of the housing market and mortgage data rolling off and these other factors that are going to be uh, a bit of a headwind to growth. So we shouldn't rely just on tourism, we shouldn't rely just on education or on China to drive the economy. It needs to be something that's much more balanced. Much more diversified. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about Southeast Asia? So if you look at Vietnam, for example, what are your thoughts on their economy and their outlook? I mean, yeah, it's a it's a frontier market. So it's kind of like only if you're looking at the emerging market exposure, it sometimes gets squeezed in there because it's been such a popular market in terms of benefiting from a lot of the supply chain uh, shifting we've seen throughout the last few years from the trade wars with the US and China go back in 2016. Um, it's been a big beneficiary of that and, and sort of in terms of the number of companies that are operating through there and that's that's lifted uh, the outlook for the market. I think that will continue. Uh, more broadly in ASEAN, again, you've seen some of that tourism uh, resumption come through, but you also have uh, a lot of domestic demand coming back as well. The outlook for inflation rolling over, central banks that have been much more aggressive in hiking rates earlier on, thinking about cutting cycles, which can support that growth. So there's a a pretty strong case for looking at the ASEAN markets where the valuations haven't gone to the same levels as they have in those North uh, Asian economies, such as Taiwan and Korea, as I mentioned. Um, And the fact that you're still getting uh, a lot of those long-term themes around higher um, wealthier people in terms of the demographic profile, which is quite positive thinking about things like banking and the quality of the banks there, which don't have the same issues as, as many other ones around the world right now. Um, and so it is a bit of a, a benefit. I think if we looked at emerging markets more broadly in our exposures, it's definitely got an Asian bias. A lot of it's linked back to China in terms of the reopening. And I, I would stress while it has been slow, that growth is still going to come through and that is going to benefit the region more broadly. Okay. So we've talked a lot about 2023 in the past. Looking ahead, we'd actually love to hear your thoughts on valuation and outlook for 2024. I still can't believe we're now looking at 2024. Uh, how do you think growth assets perform? Uh, well, this is the right time to look in the year ahead because, uh, you know, while most banks are putting out their, their mid-year outlooks, when you look at how uh, analysts are putting in their, their numbers, they're thinking about what's the second half of this year delivering, what's the first half of next year delivering. And if the thesis is really about weaker growth across the second half of this year, then we start to think about the recovery that might come through in the first half of 2024, particularly as we can then start thinking about central banks genuinely cutting interest rates to support the economic outlook. So that should be quite positive for, for growth stocks in that environment. 
a lot of the question will come down to how high valuations continue to rise over the course of this year, given the, the movement we have seen, um, and also about that shape of the, the recession or the downward shift in growth. So expectations are that it's really the US when we think about at recession that it will be relatively mild because there's not been a huge boom in many cyclical parts of the economy. So why should we expect a massive bust? Um, and therefore we can think about a, a pretty quick recovery because a policy-induced recession that's all about higher interest rates suddenly is to start to turn around pretty quickly when those rates get cut. Um, and that does mean we think more about the, the favorable parts with much more cyclical in terms of our allocation towards equities, where now it's more quality and a little bit more defensive. We think about uh, government bond yields that are likely to fall between now uh, and that recessionary point and shifting away from thinking about being uh, extended its duration a little bit more, moving back towards high yield uh, and other parts of the fixed income market, which would be underweight now. And that general rotation away from uh, a quality bias in a portfolio to thinking about something that's much more actively uh, in tune with the recovery and the economy. We're still some way from that, though, I would say, that we have to get to that very low point in the growth outlook um, for those valuations to be reset. Uh, and so for now, the, 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 the portfolio positioning that we would hold is still very one of a quality bias, of being more defensive, of thinking about the opportunities that will present themselves and being ready for it, coming back to some of your earlier points around cash. So I think 2024 will be much more constructive. The one issue I would have though, is we look at um, analyst expectations for earnings growth in 2024, they're pretty high. I mean, so there's 12% earnings growth priced in for the US market, for example. Uh, that's that's pretty elevated, and we could see those come back a little bit uh, if that recessionary view gets pushed out from the starting point being the fourth quarter of this year to thinking about it being in early 2024. So um, that would be the only thing that we would uh, push back on. But otherwise, you know, there's definitely a case for thinking about the other side of this economic cycle and, and thinking about, well, we don't need to be positioned for it right now. Uh, what positioning would you take when it does start to turn? Yeah, and so just to finalise that point, do you have any kind of checklist or tools that you use to go, all right, we can see it happening, we're ready to shift, but maybe we want two quarters of positive news and, and data to come out. Is there is there any magic to it or you just give it give us your insights? Yeah, I think there's, we'd be looking at a broad range of data. We'd be looking at, so we'd want to see uh, really that the, there's a trough in the earnings on the market side that that really has been priced in. We'd see that earnings growth come through and we'd start to think about that earnings growth being much more positive. Uh, we'd think about the, where we'd see that weakness in the economic uh, economy. So it's mainly in the manufacturing sector and the good cycles. So we'd want to see that turn. So that could be the PMIs for manufacturing. We'd want to see the, the PMIs for services start to come down because that's an indication of the inflation pressures in their economy. And that will give us more faith that we would actually see the central banks move away from uh, holding rates to thinking about cutting rates to allow that growth to come through. So, And then finally, on the valuation side of things, I mean, valuations don't have to be screamingly cheap, but maybe they've come down a bit from where they have been uh, and probably maybe more in line with they were at the start of the year in terms of thinking about the equity market. Um, and also on the credit side, we'd be looking for, for spreads to widen out much more than they have been. They don't need to go to back to, to prior recessionary levels in terms of there's better quality in a lot of the sort of high yield market or emerging markets that hasn't in the past, but we definitely see those spreads to, to widen out to something that actually has priced in that weaker growth outlook. So there's a number of things we'd be looking for to say, that's generally the, the, the turn in the market. 
Uh, and I think, unfortunately, some of those things will come before that that low in the economy. Some of them might not just start to show up until after you've actually hit that low in the economy. So we're cautiously optimistic until there is another black swan event because we've had a couple of those in the last couple of years, to be honest. They're just swans now. I mean, they're just so often just call them swans, yeah. So to finish up, we would love to hear any bold predictions that you might have for the remainder of 2023. doesn't have to be market-related, but love it if it is. could be a sporting prediction prediction, you know, anything that you think's a highly chance of playing out between now and the end of the year? I think uh, the, the boldest prediction would be that central banks can actually bring down inflation without creating a pretty dire uh, economic outcome, uh, whether that be a recession in the US or uh, something that's pretty close to it in Australia, given how hawkish they're being, the chance of a policy area that they just over-tighten and then you get uh, the cumulative impact of all that tightening really hitting the economy all at once it is up there. So my bold prediction on the markets would be that the central banks miraculously do bring down inflation without creating that benign or die crash in the economic outlook. Um, and personally, a bold prediction would be that any of the DIY projects I start at home actually get completed. <laughs> and my wife is happy with me. Uh, generally, I call it DIY. She calls it DI don't. DI don't. That's funny. Well, thank you, Kerry, so much for chatting with us today. It was a very insightful conversation. No worries. Great to be on the show. And thank you again for having me. Well, that's a wrap with our conversation with Kerry Craig from JP Morgan. If you want to find out more about JP Morgan's market views and their investment products, please reach out to us via CFT group at shoreandpartners.com.au. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shore and Partners, as always, today our discussion does not constitute as financial personal advice. Always go out and seek your own professional advice before you make any of your investment decisions. And because we spoke a lot about the market data and what's going on in global economies today, all the information is based on the facts known at the time of recording, which is the 13th of June, 2023. Yes, and make sure you follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify, or better yet, just share it with your friends. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.